Welcome to the 2022 year interview from the Geopolitical Pickle. 2022 has been a blur, so we thought we would give you a review of the year that was. In a year that saw the world's population pass 8 billion people for the first time. A year that saw three different UK Prime Ministers, one losing their race for a tenureship to a head of lettuce, and the deaths of some historically important individuals. This year the Queen died after 70 years as ruling monarch of the UK, bringing into question many countries' relationship with their former coloniser, and leading Barbados already to leave the Commonwealth ahead of what could be potentially other countries. Mikhail Gorbachev passed away, the last leader of the Soviet Union, and the man who oversaw its disintegration. How can we forget the unprecedented assassination of Japan's longest-serving Prime Minister in history, Shinzo Abe? an ensuing reckoning for Japanese politics and their relationship with a fundamentalist church. This all happened, obviously, in the shadow of Russia's war with Ukraine, and as the world attempted to move on from two years of economic stagnation and the huge toll that was imposed on people due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I would like to just bring us back for a moment to December 2021, where the world was still coming to grips with having been in and out of lockdowns having strict rules imposed on what they can do, many people being unable to work, travel, or see their loved ones. Many of the developed nations across the world were starting to reopen. However, for example, our current home, the Czech Republic, closed their famous Christmas markets the day before they were due to open in December last year. My home country, Australia, still had their borders mostly closed to citizens and completely closed to foreigners. And many of the developing world were still in the grips of the worst of the pandemic due to inadequate access to vaccines. In fact, it was actually January 21st this year that had the highest number of daily cases since the beginning of the pandemic, according to Worldometer, at almost 4 million people diagnosed in a single day. What a difference a year makes. With the world occupied and fixated on the first large-scale war in Europe since World War II, there have been many geopolitical developments around the globe. We'll aim to give a brief summary of the geopolitical events that have happened to shape the world through 2022. But to start with, we of course have to talk briefly about the war. So Wanfri, over to you for a summary of what has happened. I just want to say that one of the things that have happened this year is the creation of the geopolitical pickle. So that is something that a I monumentous want to occasion. A, mo <laughs> a monumentous occasion. And let's start a little bit with what's happened in 2022 as well unless you've lived in a cave for the last year you know what has been the most important or at least where the focus of the international media has been put for the last year which has been the invasion of russia to ukraine on the 24th of february russia invaded ukraine from the north the east and the south with full force after some initial success and almost reaching kiev the russian machine war was stopped by the ukrainian resistance which started receiving military assistance from their Western neighbors and later from the USA, from NATO and from other countries. The surprising resistance didn't stop there. 
and the field situation for the past months turned from a defensive to a counter-offensive on the Ukrainian side, liberating all the territory around Kiev, the Kharkiv Oblast, the Kherson Oblast, and city, and effectively leaving Russia without full control of any other, over any of the territories claimed. On the 21st of September, Putin announced a partial mobilization of the country, which posed the fear for uh, male adults in Russia of whether they were going to be forcibly uh, mobilized or not, forcibly drafted. Later, Russia ran largely criticized and unrecognized referendums of annexation in the occupied territories of Kherson, Luhansk, Saporizhia, and Donetsk, even without fully controlling any of the territories. Putin announced the annexation of these regions by 30th of, of September. The United Nations General Assembly voted first to condemn Russian invasion and later the annexation by similar votes, highlighting that there are only six countries that have voted against any of these resolutions, including the Russia themselves, North Korea, Syria, Nicaragua, Belarus and Eritrea, showing Russia's isolation. However, still strong actors didn't take a position in the matter, such as China and India, and this leaves Moscow with a window for maneuvering. Since the counteroffensive took place, and especially since a still unidentified bomber blew a part of the Crimean bridge that connected Crimea with Russia, Putin's military has run a missile strike and drone strike campaign against civil targets of Ukraine, damaging its, its energy infrastructure as well as civilian infrastructure, and leaving Ukraine with a critical situation. And now let's go a little bit more in like what's well, happening. There's obviously a lot of out effects because of this war that have been felt all over the world. So the first point that we'd like to talk about now is energy security. Now, energy security has become one of the, or probably the most important topic in Europe and across the region. And then I guess that has outflowed across the world. Russia's gas supplies, the EU prior to the invasion, counted for more than 40% of the supplies to the continent and more than 45% of the coal imports and 27% of the crude oil imports. Effectively, overall energy imports to the EU accounted for over 25% just from Russia. Since the beginning of the war, the EU has been trying to change their sources of energy, and thus they've been trying to reach agreements with other parts of the world. Agreements with Algeria to supply LNG, as well as with Qatar, maybe point out on this, but also a focus on renew and renewable energies, and the rise of imports for already allies like the UK, especially the United States and also Norway, have managed to reduce the importance of all the Russian imports from more than 25% that it was before the war to a current below 15% in less than a year. So it is uh, a major <laughs> Let's shift. see what happens, but it's been, a, it's been an interesting And I thing. think it's only going to increase from now. Yes, and it's going to try to second, diversify more. The second major impact has been the disruptions to the trade sector. So the invasion came with a disruption to the exports and the production capabilities both within Ukraine and then because of sanctions within Russia. Ukraine and Russia are both large manufacturers and providers for North Africa, the Middle East and East Africa being the most affected regions, having more than 50% of their cereal imports coming from that region. Yes, not just that, but... Those are North Africa and Middle East, but Eastern Africa is actually dependent on 90% of those cereal imports. In that case, that is the problem. This crisis has exacerbated one of the problems that was already in these regions, that was famine and problems with poor existences. But also, not just the direct uh, input of cereals, but the fertilizers that are needed to, mm -hmm. uh, to produce those cereals. And then, so, throughout the conflict and the crisis... The effects of the invasion have aimed to be softened 
by the UN brokered, with the assistance of Turkey, agreement to allow trade coming up from the ports of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. These Black Sea ports have been allowed to release ships. However, the agreement has been weak and has already been under threat multiple times when Russia choose to opt out of the agreement and say that they can no longer guarantee the security mm -hmm. of ships coming from Ukrainian Black Sea ports. Mm -hmm. Indeed, it's been something that has uh, touched everyone. And the Russians complained about some strikes led by Ukraine to the port of Sevastopol. But then uh, they came back to the they came back to the table. We don't know if forced by by Turkey and the UN or forced by their own situation. And they actually had to to resume all these exports. Also, given this uh, food insecurity, there's been countries that have already gone towards a more protectionistic approach with their food resources. And some countries like Argentina, Egypt, India, Indonesia, Turkey or Hungary have already put a cap or, or have already put a total ban on exports on staple crops and cereals, for example. Now, the third major area where the war has actually impacted and had a wider effect is the prices of energy and food around the world, but particularly in Europe, I think. So food and energy prices have been major drivers of inflation across the world. But they have, in the last few months, they've decreased sharply because of the price of oil has declined to $83 a barrel by the end mm -hmm. of April, uh, sorry, the end of November. Yeah. Natural gas price in Europe is still twice the pre-war level, but have fallen below 150 euros per megawatt, well below their August peak of 340 euros per megawatt. Which was something incredible. I mean, the gas prices over Europe doubled uh, in one year. The average household uh, electricity cost increased in 67%. And despite uh, this uh, decline in food prices and in energy prices in recent months, domestic inflation rates are continuing to rise among every country, mm. uh, especially hitting developing economies. And Europe, in this sense, food price inflation reached food price inflation reached over 13% for developing countries this year, about 89% of developing countries, 93% of landlocked developed countries, and 94% of small island developing states have seen food inflation levels among 5%, and many of them of double digits, which is something that obviously exacerbates the other the already internal problems that they may have. And so. Just flowing on from that downward stream effect from the increase in energy and food prices is an inflationary pressure, which has been felt in almost every nation in the whole world this year. As you just said, emerging markets and developing economies, they had a peak inflation on average of 11% in the third quarter, which is horrific for any developing nation to have mm -hmm. that level of inflation. Since then, the news has brightened recently in the in the fourth quarter, with it actually declining down to 8%, but that's mm -hmm. still well above what the generally targeted inflation level of about 3% is. Yes. Especially we are from Europe, but like when we see that this inflation is happening in, in uh, developing countries, it might not be that uh, surprising. For example, Zimbabwe is a perfect example of mm. constant inflation everywhere. But this inflation is actually happening the, within the European Union with an average nowadays of 10% of inflation in regards with the prices of November last year. Which I'm sure most people have felt the effects of. Most people have felt. And even with peaks in, uh, in Estonia, for example, with over 21% <coughs> of inflation yeah. rate, which is something that goes well over the average. Whereas in Asia, for example, because of not being affected that much by this trade coming from Russia or by not the energy crisis. Not having dependency on Russian exactly, imports. Exactly. This, this inflation has not 
rose that much in this product. It hasn't materialized in the same way. Exactly. One other outflow effect from the war is that NATO countries and predominantly all Western countries have put sanctions on the Russian elite. These sanctions are kind of unprecedented compared to what was done in 2014, which most people thought were very minor sanctions Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. really just a slap on the wrist. The sanctions have come down harder and harder since the start of the war, with I think eight rounds of sanctions from the EU. Yes. And not just that, Russia has not been the only target, also Belarus for their participation in the war and Iran for their for supplying the kamikaze drones that have become famous lately, the Sahed 131 and 136. They've both also been they've also been imposed sanctions. The sanctions started right after the invasion, so more or less by March, the SWIFT uh, the Russia was Russia and Belarus were cut from the SWIFT. It's made them really difficult to engage in international trade because uh, usually those those transactions all transactions are made through this system if not without this system they had to go back to the 70s the 80s where they had to do with confirmation 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 it was it delayed every but then every possible trade that russia had in that sense and there's been a huge crackdown on individuals closely associated with the Mm -hmm. kremlin including things such as travel bans Asset freezes, I, I know we've seen multiple super yachts seized across European and NATO countries. Football teams. Football teams being having to be sold, such as Chelsea by the then owner Robin Abrahamovic, which mm-hmm. ties into our episode on sports washing and how sports can be used. So listen yeah, to that one. And then a ban on imports and exports into Russia. Those imports, actually, interestingly, there's many things that have been sanctioned. We have continents, technology, machinery, energy, energy industry, equipment, aviation, maritime and space technology, dual-use goods such as can be drones or can be draw, uh, software that can be used for either civilian or uh, military purposes, and firearms and any other equipment. And for the imports, crude oil is sanctioned from December this year, so starting three, some weeks ago. And refined petroleum products from February 2023, which are added up to other raw materials such as coal, steel, iron, gold, cement, wood, paper, plastic, seafood, liquor, cigarettes, and cosmetics. So all of those imported uh, goods will have sanctions, as well as the price cap, which has been put on mm-hmm. exports of Russian oil. Now, that's hard to enforce, but the international community has been quite consistent on making sure that this money can't flow into Russian coffers. Mm-hmm. Indeed, the European Union put a 60 euro price cap on the crude oil coming from Russia. And uh, it's still to be seen whether it can make a change. Another set of sanctions, though, were imposed to five news outlets coming from Russia in an attempt to the, uh, of the European Union to prevent the spread of misinformation and propaganda related with the Kremlin. So one other major geopolitical shift in the world order it's a direct result of this war is the their two neighbors sweden and finland asking to join nato now this would have been completely unprecedented prior to the war um, due to the fact that russia had invaded these countries started to look differently at their own security so they sent a joint application to nato on the 18th of may we actually covered this in another episode uh, so you should listen to that but just to summarize briefly, these two countries would have been unthinkable for them to join NATO. These two NATO. countries have been historically neutral states. I mean, during the Cold War, when they had the, the threat, when there was this fight between the East and the West, they remained neutral and they didn't join NATO, nor the Warsaw Pact. 
since the Cold War finished, they didn't join any of the, they didn't join any military alliance, and they saw their territorial integrity, their sovereignty threatened after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, mm. and thus they asked for this uh, accession into into NATO. However, and even though apparently in the beginning every country in NATO was like really welcoming and everything, and like Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, welcomed these applications. There's actually been issues bringing them into NATO. Out of all the countries participating in NATO right now, there's only two, but still two, that remain without giving their acceptance to this uh, to this accession, which are Hungary, which has jeopardized actually the European uh, European policy in the latest. Has been jeopardizing it for a while, but particularly this year has been interesting because of their ties and even personal ties of Orbán with Russia. And Turkey, who doesn't have necessarily those ties with Russia, but has played a mediator between Russia and Ukraine. And its problem is that Sweden and Finland have actually supported movements uh, located in the Kurdistan, which are considered by Russia as an existential threat to their own state. So right now they're still in those negotiations, even though they say that they will enter, they still haven't signed the accession of Finland and Sweden to NATO. So it's But again, something... Turkey's kind of playing this off the geopolitical position mm-hmm. in this regard and trying to extract something from the bargain, mm-hmm. which again is something we covered in a different episode, which was yes. Turkey's role in the world, its mm-hmm. position and mm-hmm. its ability to use those use those strategic advantages to, to to whatever the case may be, you know. Geopolitics of Turkey. Give it a look. Now I think we should just touch on the support that Ukraine has received from the international community because it's been unprecedented in its level and mm-hmm. its consistency and its uh, longevity as well, yeah. I think. It's been the total amount of uh, support, the total amount of money received by Ukraine is mounting around the $120 billion, billion euros. Being the United States and the European Union's country and in, countries and institutions, the biggest donors. However, individually, the United States, the United States still the largest individual dollar, particularly in military on military equipment, for around 23 billion euros. And the Baltic Republics, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, as well as Poland, are the largest donors per percentage of their GDP. Mm-hmm. And the military support overall has been monumental from the West. I mean, mm-hmm. especially from NATO countries. Mm-hmm. However, there's some states which have slowed down their supply due to actually running short on their own supplies. Mm-hmm. And it's shown underlying weaknesses in supply chains of some of the Western European countries in being able to arm in the case of a conflict. So we look at Germany right now, Mm -hmm. they actually stopped uh, providing ammunition because of a lack of their own stockpiles of ammunition. Mm -hmm. And again, I mean, we did another episode about this, interviewing the Czech Deputy Minister of Defense, if you want to check that out. And for that, uh, one thing that we can add to that episode is that there's two actors that have been rising as uh, one as importer and one as exporter of weapons. The one importer is Poland, who has decided to enlarge its military by 200% uh, almost in the following years and has actually already stepped up into buying all these materials. And the supplier has surprisingly not been any of the traditional uh, arms exporters, but has been South Korea who's now seen that they can produce there's an opportunity and here. there's an opportunity here that they can sell. And the Polish so far are accepting those and are liking those because they are of good quality and they are cheaper. Yep. So for Poland and for South Korea, it's been a, a round business in that matter. So, I mean, it's interesting to see how this will actually play out and then affect the world order going forward because 
traditionally Russia has been the second largest exporter of arms in the whole world by a long way mm-hmm. behind the US. This has shown their a lack of capacity now to supply these arms, especially to African and Central Asian countries, mm-hmm. which are huge importers of Russian manufactured arms. This void in the market could lead to other countries, as you say, South Korea taking up the charge, but then... But also, but then in, this could potentially play out in leading to some more interstate conflicts as one side sees a strategic advantage where Russia has, main, has possibly played a mediating role mm-hmm. uh, if we look at Nagorno-Karabakh Tourism. situation or in the situation between Algeria and Morocco, that conflict is starting to flare again for the first time in a long time, mm-hmm. as well as Iran and Saudi Arabia, yes, both there were flexing their of, muscles, uh, yes. muscles and Right now, tensions being the highest on the Korean Peninsula since the Korean War mm-hmm. between North and South Korea, which we'll touch on briefly later in the Asian section. Just to finish a little bit wrapping up with, with the Russian invasion to Ukraine, according to the UNHCR, the High Commissioner for Refugees, there's more than 8 million uh, externally external refugees that have fled the country in Europe's largest refugee crisis since World War II as well as more than 6 million internal displaced population. This entire situation has jeopardized the entire system and has drastically increased instability in the world. And for the first time since the end of the Cold War, there is an actual threat of use of nuclear weapons, which has put everything even in a more delicate situation. Absolutely. To flow on from Russia and the effects, just to go straight to maybe the impact it might have had domestically in Europe, This year has seen a rise in far-right populist parties and elections with across Europe, maybe some of them surprising and some of them actually going against what was expected. So mm-hmm. we did make an episode again about far-right wave in, of populism across Europe. Is there a far-right, wave, there a far-right wave of populism going across Europe? We, we can look, there's two, been two major far-right electoral victories this year, both of which took place days apart. The first being in Sweden, where the Swedish Democrats took 20.5% of the vote and actually were invited into a coalition with the moderate right party mm-hmm. to work in government for the first time. And, and then, then we saw and then we saw Giorgia Meloni with her party Fratelli d'Italia uh, getting elected in Italy as and being a far right and openly far right uh, president uh, with the support of other two far right groups, which are Uh, Salvini, led by Salvini and led by former President uh, Berlusconi. Mm -hmm. However, we've also seen some defeats to the far right uh, with Emmanuel Macron, for example, beating uh, Marine Le Pen in the last last round of the elections. Though it was a tight result, but uh, Macron won the election. Or, for example, in uh, Austria, the incumbent president, Alexander Van den Velen, defeating the far right candidate, Walter Rosenkrantz, for example. For more information on this, again, You can check our video on far right in Europe. Is there a far right in Europe? We would like to see your opinion in the comments. <laughs> Moving on from European elections, now we can talk about the elections that have been held across the South American continent. There's been a few of them. We've got at the beginning of the year, well, at the beginning, no, uh, but the first ones that we can put there, uh, Colombia. Colombia has seen a historical shift in their own politics. For the first time, a leftist uh, government has been elected into into Bogotá. And with the first leftist president, Gustavo Petro, he's a former guerrilla fighter and also the former uh, mayor of Bogotá, in duet with Francia Market, 
who's the who's a former environmentalist leader, and she is an indigenous leader, and she is the first Afro-descendant vice president in the history of Colombia. They took over the 7th of August after two rounds of elections, and this is a really historical day because it might actually signify a shift of Colombia's policies towards the region. Colombia has historically been the footstep of the mm. United States in Latin America, and now the, the approachment, for example, with Venezuela or with other South American countries with similar leaning ideologies may be a shift for, for the entire continent, or maybe not, because maybe the not. differences that but they have among them, they are pretty interesting. I mean, pretty big. it's the first shi shift of a leftist government in Colombia. It's the yeah. first time that a leftist government is elected in Colombia. And there is another really interesting thing and important is that Francia Marquez, the vice president, she is an environmentalist in the most dangerous country to be an environmentalist in the world, mm. with the most uh, assassinations to environmentalist activists in the world in 2022. And, and now, talking about leftist governments winning elections in South America, we couldn't not talk about the election that happened in Brazil, where it was between Jair Bolsonaro, the incumbent president, and Lula da Silva, who eventually won the second round of elections at the end of October. Mm-hmm. Which we also had a podcast episode on Draft that. Which a is... crash course in Brazil related to that. Wow, beautiful. <laughs> so, do you want to tell us more about that? Yes, I mean, as you rightfully said, uh, Bolsonaro is a far-right president in the moment and leftist Da Silva, former president, uh, leaving the House in uh, 2010. This campaign was basically touched by disinformation, by fake news at a massive scale, highly divided population. And this has created a situation that Lula right now is still after winning by not that much, but still winning the elections. There are there are several popular unrest that he's going to have to face internally. He's got the mining industry, the timber industry, truck drivers. He's got them against him, even calling for a, for a coup, to a military coup. Particularly because uh, Bolsonaro had been fueling these policies of extractivism in the Amazon that Lula will seem mm -hmm. to, to reverse. And which, externally... Which we've already seen by them signing an agreement with exactly. Indonesia and the Congo. For example, Brazil was a country that uh, opted out from the 2016 Paris Agreement. Now yep. they are supposed to come back. Rejoin, yep. Mm -hmm. And externally, uh, Brazil was an isolated power for Bolsonaro's time. Didn't really have many allies, uh, particularly after Trump left the White House. And now with uh, Lula da Silva, what we may see is um, a reinforcement of organizations such as BRICS, where Brazil is an important asset, and maybe also a reinvigoration of intra-regional uh, relations. However, for more information on that, you have our episode with uh, Espetinho Internacional with Mr. Felipe Simoni that explains everything really well. Staying within South America now, there was a constitutional attempt to change or attempt to change a constitution in Chile. Mm -hmm. Now, the government of Gabriel Boric uh, conv uh, convened a referendum attempt to change a constitution from the 1980 constitution that was in place since Pinochet's military dictatorship. During the run-up to the referendum, disinformation been... and fake news were everywhere. Exactly, as with Brazil, disinformation and fake news took the center of the entire process. And the result was against the, the new constitution. Some experts are saying that it might be because uh, of a too 
ambitious constitution. To be fair, it would have become the most progressive constitution in the whole world, giving yes. indigenous land rights, giving rights to feminist mm -hmm. movements, and really, really progressive. And maybe it yes. was too much too soon, but it's a, However, it's a sign of the shift in Latin American politics yes. that this was even on the table. It is even it is really interesting, especially in Chile, which is a country that has suffered from a lot of internal division, violence, that they could reach to a consensus to, for the constitution. It was already interesting in the beginning. The negative to the constitution by the people just was taken as another chance by the by the government. And the 12th of December, President Boric announced the agreement with uh, other um, with uh, the opposition to create a constitutional council that later on will be. Uh, well, this constitutional council will be erected, elected by direct vote from the uh, by the population, and then they will be in charge of writing and applying the new constitution. There is one important thing to talk about Chile, though, that I would like to add. Something that has been happening to understand Chile, as to understand Latin America, as geopoliticians, you need to understand certain things, and one of it is their natural resources. No. Chile is a country uh, that lives between timber exploitations, uh, mining exploitations, and so on. And there, then there's, uh, then there's uh, native populations that don't want those mining exploitations to be there. And if you want to learn a little bit more about it, it's a good opportunity to learn more about Chile's Mapuche issue, you can call it, which has also sparked this year and which has led to clashes between the uh, Mapuche population, uh, which are an originary people, and uh, the government of uh, Gabriel Boric. Moving on from Chile, if we go right to a neighbor, Peru, <laughs> they, they seem to be constantly mired in issues. This, they're now on to their seventh president in two years, just recently, in the last two weeks, getting rid of their previous president in a well, as he tried to seize power from the mm -hmm. from the parliament. Yes, basically, President Castillo tried to dissolve the Congress uh, after having fought. Well, he was just about to face his third impeachment for unable, more for being morally unable to uh, perform as president, which is something that I don't know any other country that has it. But at least three presidents or four presidents of Peru in the last decade, have been ousted by their <laughs> from their position by this. In the end, it's an, it's an impeachment vote that Castillo tried to avoid, the third one, in one year and a half of presidency, and tried to dissolve the Congress and gave himself full powers to then call for elections in a year and something, which didn't happen. The Congress denied so, the military denied so, and two hours after after trying to dissolve the Congress, he was actually arrested by his own uh, by his own security guards. Shortly after Castillo was arrested, there were massive demonstrations in the street that turned violent. The president, the incumbent president uh, Dina Boluarte, called for a state of emergency in the entire country. The extremely fractured political landscape. Curiously enough, in Peru there are no historical parties. There are many parties. And mm. Castillo, for example, was supported by one of these parties. By that party, ousted him to here. There is an economic situation that is terrible right now. There is a multi-ethnic population and there are successive corruption scandals involving the political elites in Peru. And it all makes it uh, turmoil. Just to say, out of the seven presidents, the seven last presidents, five are in jail. Or at least indicted for some uh, cases of corruption. Mm. So, I mean, it's... Um, it's a big thing in that sense. 
However, now Dina Boluarte has led has later after the protests kept on going and declaring the state of emergency, she said she declared that she was going to organize uh, elections according to the constitution, and according to the constitution, the times are until 2024. However, given the pressure of the street, it this time maybe pushed uh, pushed forward to 2023. So the last country I want to talk about in South America is Venezuela. Now, Venezuela has been under sanctions since mm-hmm. the disputed presidential situation between Nicolas Maduro and Juan Guaido. Mm-hmm. The situation was that Venezuela is one of the leading exporters of oil in the world. And since Russia has been sanctioned by the West predominantly, they've had to look for other sources mm-hmm. to supply oil. Basically, the United States has turned their, has turned around and seen Venezuela close to their border and said, "Hmm, now in this moment where we need to where we need to diversify our sources of uh, of energy, what can we do?" And since the beginning of 2022, these sanctions imposed on uh, on Venezuela uh, have been lifted, to not radically, but have been uh, more loosened. or less have been loosened. Uh, with, for example, the Biden administration allowing Chevron to resume operations in Venezuela after Maduro resumed communication with, with the with the opposition. Venezuela has been at odds with the United States uh, for, for a decade now, and in this decade, Caracas grew closer to China, Iran, and Russia. However, adding the results of the late Colombian election that we were mentioning before, and the loosening of sanctions by the United States with the, with the Biden administration, we we may see a shift of uh, Venezuela a little bit more towards their neighbors. For example, uh, they didn't vote in favor of Russia. They abstained themselves, which is, I mean, just as China. I mean. mm-hmm. Going now from U.S. external politics being involved in Venezuela, talking about the internal politics has been some developments throughout 2022. Firstly, the Supreme Court overturned the historic 1975 um, ruling on Roe v. Wade, which allowed the right to abortion. This uh, overturning was highly contentious within the United States, but also has ripple effects across the world because the United States was one of the first countries in the world to fully legalize abortion access. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think we could definitely see some sort of backlash from other countries against the right to abortion when the United States has been trying to push this outwardly for a long time and now has their own problems internally because of the the way the Supreme Court is set up. Uh, right now it's stacked with six conservative Supreme Court justices versus three progressive liberal justices because uh, pres- ex-President Trump was allowed to appoint three judges during his term as president. Mm-hmm. And in this sense, uh, it's pointing out um, once again the internal by the polarization of American society this just was uh, another adding to this uh, situation where states that were clearly in favor of doing this they basically banned abortion under under every term whereas other uh, states pushed for for this um, full legalization full legalization then uh, lately as a reaction for example in my opinion as a reaction you have the gay marriage legalization at a federal level and so on to try and and maintain those rights at the federal level so that they cannot be on on charge of the states. But it is something that obviously it uh, with the American system it is uh, it's got its particularities. It does. So 
And then I think just as a downflow from this decision, we saw just recently in November the midterm elections mm -hmm. where many people predicted that there would be a Republican red wave sweeping across the country because of the perceived unpopularity of Joe Biden, because of the COVID response where you see a lot, a really divided country and a lot of mm -hmm. people not being happy with the response. However, the, the red wave didn't come at all. It didn't come in the end. The Republicans only gained nine seats in the House, making it a total of 222 seats and a really slim minority, whereas the Democrats maintained the majority in the Senate with 51 seats, which was something that wasn't that much uh, expected. The main issues around this, uh, around the debate uh, went around uh, inflation, migration, abortion and democracy. So those are topics that you can see being permanent in the United States uh, public opinion for the last uh, few years now. And it is actually significant mm. because even though everyone thought that Joe Biden would have worse results and because of his popularity and whatever, I, he's only the third president in his first midterm to gain or not to lose Senate seats while losing fewer than 10 House seats, mm. which makes it the only only the third president to do that, even with the popularity rates that, and everything. So it's a... Uh, you can see that it's obviously very good results for the Democrats and really actually poor results for the Republicans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now let's go a little bit outside from the Americas. We've done Europe, we've done the Americas, but the world is really big. So why don't we go to the Middle East and Northern Africa? And I think, I mean, you can argue whether, whether, where is this country positioned? But let's start with this country, Iran. Iran has seen the largest demonstrations in their history since the since the Iranian Revolution of uh, 1979, due to the to the death of Masha Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish uh, girl that died on 16 September, after being arrested by the polarity police by the morality police for not wearing the hijab properly taken to one of the headquarters of the morality police for a re-education uh, class from where she left less than two hours later in a coma to finally pass away in the hospital. These protests are unprecedented in Iran. They have been mostly peaceful from demonstrators, but have seen a harsh crackdown from security forces. We've seen national celebrities and sports people air their public support for the protests and discontent with the current regime. And basically seen a massive backlash against people. We saw the rock climbing athlete that competed without a hijab mm -hmm. and then she was rushed back to Iran and gave a apology, which most observers think was forced. Uh, we've seen the Iranian national football team in Qatar uh, not sing the national anthem and be um, threatened with extremely harsh penalties such as jail time. Or even and to their families. Even to their the families just for not for not singing the national anthem mm -hmm. also uh, as far as as far as ngos is concerned at least 15000 people have been arrested since the demonstration started however this number has been around since november because there is a total crashdown on uh, on internet in the country so it's not it's it's really really difficult to access to information there's been 458 people killed so far at the moment that we are recording this episode and 11 officially sentenced to death. With the first uh, executions just taking place mm -hmm. in the last week. Um, with the, exactly. Unfortunately. And the, well, basically the Iranian authorities have uh, accused the foreign actors to be behind this protest, have accused the United States, Israel, Europe, Saudi Arabia 
for being behind these protests and utilizing the death of Masha Amini for their own excuse to target the country. However, after three months, the morality, the morality police will apparently be shut down as a response for this uh, for this. Although there's conflicting reports about that. Mm -hmm. And then I think the outlook for 2023 is really up in the air for Iran because right now we see a lot of pressure on the Supreme Leader and within the party some fractures starting to occur mm. where people within the party are going against and dissenting from the the view that this hardline approach must be maintained. And we it's yet to be seen basically whether these protests will be successful or whether they could actually usher in a new revolution where they could go back to the liberal Iran prior to the Islamic revolution in 1979, which turned it from a very progressive Middle Eastern country into an extremely strict Sharia-enforcing country. So, well, we continue a little bit in the, in the Middle East and now we go with Turkey. What has happened with them? So... Turkey has been involved in Syria for a long time and they've basically reignited their campaign against the Kurdish forces within mm -hmm. Syria. They've conducted a bunch of airstrikes against the PKK, the Kurdistan's Workers' Party, and they've used this as a pretext for operations in Iraq and and Syria. Mm -hmm. Actually, this, bomb, this last bomb campaign called Claw Sword started as a retaliation for an Istanbul terrorist attack of court in 13th November, which uh, Erdogan's government claimed to be to have been done by the by Kurdish militias. But the PKK, the Kurdish Workers' Party, as you mentioned, Ronan, they any any part of on this attack. At the beginning of December, Turkey demanded that the SDF retreat from the regions bordering with Turkey within the next two weeks, as to also seemingly to give an excuse to a further in, in properly soldier intervention in the in the country with, yes. with troops on the ground. So far, Turkey has not received a huge backlash for these airstrikes. As we've mentioned, these airstrikes were happening before. However, if they actually go on Operations. with the ground operation, it will probably be met mm. uncomfortably, at least by the international community, mm -hmm. especially in the current situation. So now to a neighbor of Turkey. Now we go to a neighbor of Turkey. What's happened between Lebanon and Israel? <laughs> so on 1st of November, Israel held their fifth legislative elections in the last four years, which basically continued their trend of very short-lived governments. This year's election saw the previous prime minister, Netanyahu, Netanyahu returned to power by securing a parliamentary majority. Mm -hmm. Netanyahu is is this will be the sixth time that he's come into prime minister. Mm -hmm. uh, and in these elections, the right-wing parties, including the far-right party, Otma Yehudit, mm. I don't think I pronounced that right, but <laughs> won, the most seats, won their most seats since the, the inception of the state of Israel. Yes, and during the election campaign, Israel and Lebanon made a deal about the maritime delimitation, which in the Eastern Mediterranean, which was a matter of uh, argument between both states because of the oil and gas uh, mm. oil and gas fields Reserves that are that are placed there. However, they reached an agreement, which is is astonishing because neither government recognized the other, <laughs> but still they managed to to secure the agreement, which which it is it is interesting. However, this agreement was made with the previous Israeli government, and Netanyahu has already stated that that the limitation is not on made on Israeli's favor. So we'll see. And we'll also what's yet to be seen is 
the Netanyahu government's stance towards Palestine and whether that government will come back and have a hardline stance towards Palestine again, as previous right-wing governments within Israel have tended to do. Mm -hmm. But leaving Israel now to talk about a conflict which doesn't get much media attention these days, but has been going on in the for the last eight years and is actually really one of the biggest humanitarian crises of this century, mm -hmm. which is the situation in Yemen. Mm -hmm. To have a short wrap-up, uh, well, a short wrap-up, no, a little bit of an overview in case, again, you've been under stone for the last eight years. In Yemen, there is a civil war where two military groups, one uh, support, one, the government supported by Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries, are fighting against the Houthi uh, rebels, which are supported by Iran. And at this point in time, according to the UN, Well, uh, according to the UN, is the one of the biggest humanitarian crises of the 21st century, with more than 11,000 11, kids killed or wounded, according to the UN again. And it's being considered nowadays to be a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran in the peninsula. Now, I think this year we've seen some sort of escalation with the fact that the Houthi rebels have actually struck outside Yemen's borders hitting oil storage facilities in Abu Dhabi in January, and then an oil depot in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, in March this year, which has seen a harsh response from the Saudi-led coalition mm -hmm. and basically targeting airstrikes on civilian facilities. So this is how the war's kind of evolved for the moment. However, there are some positive developments as well. Mm, yes, apparently the UN has been able to broker, was able to broker a two-month nationwide truce uh, on April, a truce that was uh, renewed twice, but unfortunately it ended up in the 2nd of October, and since the truth has ended, there's not been any major escalations, but the risk of uh, renewed hostilities is still quite high, and Yemen is... The outlook is still quite bleak the for Yemen, unfortunately. Is terrible for Yemen nowadays, for Yemeni population. It's uh, famine, facing famine. It's, uh, well, many aspects which one day maybe we can we can touch upon in the Absolutely, podcast. Absolutely, and now... Go a little bit southern, we go a little bit southern. Sub-Saharan Africa. And now to talk about another region which has continued instability and mm -hmm. a lot of internal issues and turmoil... I'll first talk about the Sahel region. So we've seen coups throughout the Sahel region continuously through 2021. We saw Guinea-Bissau, we saw Mali, Chad, and then Sudan all have successful coups and overthrows of the government, mm -hmm. although Chad could be debated. But but there's been a lot of coups that have occurred there. And then the hope was that this year would actually leave that behind. However, it took just until January for Burkina Faso to have their first coup, Uh, with the military takeover triggered by discontent with the government and by the people. And there was large protests and there was discontent amongst the security forces mm -hmm. about the alleged failure to deal with insurgents in the north of the country. Mm -hmm. This insurgence in the north of the country is, is basically touched by the instability surrounding Lake Chad and then in the rest of the Sahel. A Islamic group and other, as, as well as militant, as other non-state actors, JNM, are basically uh, raising fear and terror in the area. Following the coup in Burkina Faso in, in January 23, uh, there was another coup in February the 1st, 2022, in a coup attempt in Guinea-Bissau with many members of the security forces killed, but this coup didn't take... Uh, succeed. Didn't succeed. <laughs> 
So after the coup in January 23 in uh, Burkina Faso, as of uh, February 1st, there was another coup attempt in Guinea-Bissau. However, this one didn't, didn't succeed. And later, in September 30, the second coup in Burkina Faso took place, uh, ousting the military leader, President Paul Henry D'Amiba, who took place, uh, who took power in uh, January after the first coup, replacing him with Captain Army, uh, Army Captain Ibrahim Traoré. And in the process of the coup, Traoré dissolved the transitional government and suspended the constitution. Traoré criticized D'Amiba for taking a too pro-France stance on working together with their former colonizer, and he used this as a point of contention within the military forces to force out the leader. So mm-hmm. where are we now in Burkina Faso? Well, the military government has suspended all broadcasting of France, so they've taken a much harsher line on French influence within the country, mm-hmm. saying that they're full of false reports and claiming that they're a propaganda voice for France to take back the colony, as well as saying that he was the... F- target of a coup attempt at the end of November, which again came from the military, and he's saying that he chose dialogue over Uh, punishment. Okay. (laughs) Well, following this anti-French sentiment in Burkina, I think we can go to the anti-French sentiment. Where where it all started. Where it all started, exactly. And this year, France has finally, uh, after some time of uh, discussing it and some uh, pressures also from the Malian government, successive coups in, in Mali. In the end, France has pulled its troops out from Mali, as the relations between Paris and the Malian government have just uh, deteriorated over delays in returning to the constitutional rule that were promised to, to Paris, and the decision of Mali to turn to the Russian pri- private military company uh, Wagner Group to help in the, in the conflict. French troops were not just located in Mali, this was a whole uh, regional approach. They were located in Mauritania too, in Burkina Faso, in Niger and Chad. And the attacks of Islamist groups have increased in uh, Burkina and Chad. This is part of like a wider shift in French foreign policy. I think they have had the operation in the Sahel from since 2013, so nine years they spent there. And they pulled out of Mali, they pulled out of the whole region because of the, the lack of results and also because of the fact that there was little internal interest in continuing these expensive, long-drawn-out troop deployments abroad in former French colonies, which had very little tangible results. Mm -hmm. And as a direct result of France leaving, there was this power vacuum that we can say that was left. And so what has happened is the Malian government has shifted to the Russian Wagner Group, the private military contractor, which is very very closely associated with the Kremlin, to shore up their own position in power. And they also have tried to utilize them to combat some of the insurgencies in the north of the country mm-hmm. but i mean the role of wagner has been mostly as a security a- agent for the government rather than actually being used on counterinsurgency operations mm-hmm. and secondarily i think that wagner's uh, modus operandi is very questionable they don't take into account the same level of rights of the civilians as the French government troops do, for example. Mm-hmm. However, and uh, independent on how the Wagner group will develop their operations in Mali, it is clear that the intervention of the Wagner group both in Mali and in Central African Republic 
displaces the, this nation's traditional French partnership as post-colonial entities following France's decision to scale down their activity and it, amplifi it amplifies a broader geopolitical competition in Africa. Wagner-linked Russian actors have used this information to facilitate the, their, their activities, as you were mentioning. And the Mali's military junta has, has capitalized on this anti-French sentiment that there was uh, in the country to rally this uh, domestic support. However, it's left to see, as you were rightfully mentioned, how it will affect. One important thing too, this year, the Wagner group, which was a shadow group before, which was not claimed, which was nothing... Mm -hmm. It apparently has come to has come to to the world stage by establishing their headquarters, open headquarters in Saint Petersburg. So maybe they shift their their attention or their bulk of uh, people or something like this. So I think if you want to learn more about the operations of Wagner and PMCs across Africa, we did a really good interview with Piers Pigu, mm -hmm. and also talking about Islamic extremist operations, we did another interview with Professor Hossein Solomon on Janim in Mali, for instance, and other mm -hmm. extremist organizations across... Mm -hmm. The situation of security in Africa. Exactly. Say. That seems like a good place to leave it for part one. Part two will be coming to you later this week, so stay tuned for that. It will cover the rest of Africa, Asia and the geopolitical impacts of climate change, as well as also covering the cyber and space domains. In the meantime, listen back to some of our older episodes and stay happy, healthy and safe. Ciao for now.